to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 17, as we follow along with today's lesson. And he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. And if Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I through the finger of God am casting out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. So that Jesus here is declaring, look, if I'm doing this, your your position is not rational. If I am doing this by the power of, of the devil, I'm casting out devils by the power of the devil, then Satan's kingdom has divided against itself and it's going to fall. Time to rejoice. <laughs> Satan's kingdom is about over. He's casting himself out of, uh, you know, and he's against himself. But Jesus is saying that's irrational if that were the case. And isn't it interesting how irrational people do get who don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That they can become very irrational, especially when they try to explain the works of Jesus in the hearts and lives of people. They try to attribute to psychology and everything else things that are wrought by the power of the Spirit of God, and they become totally irrational. So Jesus said, if I by the finger of God or by the hand of God am casting out devils, then the proper conclusion is that the kingdom of God has come. Now, in this context, in light, when a strong man, that would be Satan, is armed, he keeps his palace and his goods are in peace. The strong man has his territory, has his defense. But when a stronger than he shall come and overcome him, he takes from him all of his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. So Jesus is declaring that Satan had his dominion. Satan had his kingdom. He was armed and and he kept that which was his. But the stronger, of course, is Jesus. 
And when he comes, he destroys the defense, the armor, and he spoils the enemy. John tells us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When Martin Luther wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, that one verse, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him, one little word will fell him. And so through Jesus Christ, Satan's power was destroyed. Jesus triumphed over Satan at the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us that he triumphed over him, making an open display of his victory as he triumphed over Satan there at the cross. So that we go into the battle as victors, the stronger. Through the power of Jesus Christ, we have authority and power over the forces of darkness and evil. One day and one day soon, Satan's kingdom is to be cast out and Jesus is going to establish the kingdom of God. And when we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying for that stronger one to come and establish his kingdom. And then Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. That is, there is no place for neutrality. He doesn't give you that option. He declares, and he doesn't even say, you know, you're either for me or against me. He says, if you're not for me, you are against me. So he does, doesn't give you any kind of a neutral option that you can take concerning you. Well, I really don't know. I, I'm just, you know, no. If you're not for him, you are against him. And he that gathereth not with me is scattering. Uh, it, it's more than just not, it, it's more than just being against him. It is uh, scattering people. Rather than gathering them unto the Lord, it's scattering them away. And then Jesus talks about really the worthlessness of self-reformation. When an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he comes, he finds it all swept and garnished. Then he goes out and takes to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So that Jesus is giving us an insight into the spirit world, and that especially of demons, and the importance of not having or leaving a void. When a demon is driven out by the power of the Spirit, the name of Jesus, unless that person receives then Jesus Christ, and unless he fills that void in his life, he's only setting himself up for a worse condition. Now, Jesus seems to indicate that 
spirits, demonic spirits, are restless unless they have a body in which they can operate. And they are seeking embodiment. We had the story just a few weeks ago of uh, the demoniac at Gadara, where the demons, when cast out, begged that they might go into the swine. And you remember the story of how the swine ran down a steep place and were drowned in the Sea of Galilee, and the men came out and begged Jesus to uh, leave their coast. Well, again, uh, they were begging not to be sent to the abyss, but uh, they, they were seeking embodiment even in swine. Now, I've met a few dogs that I thought might be demon-possessed. Uh, they were mean. And, uh, uh, but uh, there, there is uh, a restlessness looking for places to inhabit. How important that the void within our life is filled by the Spirit of God. We're protected. Um, there is no possibility of there being fellowship with light and darkness. It's important that your life be filled with the light of Jesus Christ. And so they seek for a house to inhabit. They go through the dry wilderness places, finding no place. They'll come back to the house from which they were driven. They find it, hey, this is great. It's all clean. It's empty. It's swept. It's garnished. So he goes out and gets seven others, and they come, and the last estate of the man is really first than the first. And it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the breast from which you nurse. And he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Now, interesting, here's an attempt of the woman to sort of draw attention and worship to his mother. And this follows in the eighth chapter where his mother and brother came and uh, they couldn't get into the house where he was and they sent a message in, your mother and brother are out here, they want to talk to you. And he said, uh, here are my mother and my brothers, they that do the word of God and keep it. Again, he associates uh, the word of God, those that have it and keep it, as being the ones who are truly blessed. And so uh, uh, in spite of the fact that Jesus did not encourage the worship of Mary, yet uh, it became incorporated uh, within the historic church and much honor and veneration was given to her above that which Jesus allowed or what the scripture would actually allow. Rather tragic indeed. The ones who are blessed are the ones who hear the word of God and keep it. Don't be deceived. Just hearing the word of God isn't enough. It's important that you keep the word of God. Be ye doers of the word not hearers only. And so when the people were gathered thick together, really big crowds, he began to say, this is an evil generation. And they seek a sign. Now you remember back in verse 16, uh, they were 
seeking a sign from heaven, wanting him to give them a sign. So he said, this is an evil generation, and they seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now the other gospels tell us that Jesus added, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the greatest sign that Jesus is indeed the Messiah would be his resurrection from the dead. That was to be the climactic sign uh, that he indeed was the Messiah. So no sign will be given except the sign of Jonas, the resurrection from the dead, even as Jonah uh, came out of the whale. So uh, then he went on to say, for Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. And uh, there are those who suggest that Jonah uh, was uh, quite a sight when he came to Nineveh, uh, that uh, after the experience in the whale, that the high uh, vitamin A contact would have, uh, vitamin A content of the uh, gastric juices in the whale or whatever would have turned his skin yellow, uh, caused a jaundice uh, condition, that it uh, probably would have destroyed his hair. And uh, so here he comes uh, to Nineveh uh, looking like he's uh, something from outer space. And uh, that's why they hearkened unto him. The queen of the south, who we know to be the queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, first of all, Jesus is teaching the general resurrection. Death is not the end. You may think that you can live like a hog and die like a dog, but that's not so. <laughs> there is judgment coming. And every man is going to have to answer to God on the day of judgment. And so Jesus is teaching the general resurrection of the dead to face the judgment of God. You cannot escape it except through Jesus Christ. He took the judgment of God for us. That's the glorious work of Christ in my behalf, in that he took the judgment of God for me, for my sin, for my guilt. And so there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But to those who are not in Christ Jesus... They are going to have to stand one day before the judgment of God and all of history, all of the men who have lived throughout history will rise to stand before that judgment. Revelation chapter 21 uh, gives us, an, or chapter 20 gives us an insight into this great white throne judgment of God. So all those of history, the men are the queen of Sheba. She'll be standing there but she'll condemn this generation because she came all the way from Sheba 
to listen to Solomon because she had heard of his reputation. And so she came to learn of his God. She said, oh, you know, blessed is God. He must love his people because he put such a wise man over them. And Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. The men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation and they're going to condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now that is really something. Because Jonah was not a loving prophet at all. In fact, he hated his mission. He was angry with God when the Ninevites repented. And his whole fear of going to Nineveh is that he might have a successful revival. And when it was successful, he said, didn't I say that? I knew you were a gracious God and loving and I knew you would forgive them. You know, I'm just angry with God because he didn't destroy Nineveh. He wanted to see it destroyed. And so you can imagine his preaching, not very loving. And, and really he didn't offer them any hope. He would just say, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. <laughs> Good enough for you. I mean, it was a monotonous message. No hope offered it. So well might the men of Nineveh rise with this generation and condemn it. Because, my, the gospel is preached on almost every corner you'll find a church. And for all types, sizes, and varieties, I mean, you know, you can just sort of choose the kind of a message you want to hear. And, you know, you can be, choose, you know, the kind of a vessel that you want to hear it from, you know. And yet people not repenting. So they will judge and condemn this generation. Jesus said, because a greater than Jonah is here, again referring to himself. Now no man, when he has lighted a candle, puts it in a secret place, neither under a bushel. The purpose of a candle is to give light. That's the one purpose. So when you light the candle, you don't put it under a bushel basket, but you put it on a candlestick. And they which may come in might see the light. And then the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is single, that is single towards God and the things of God, then your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is evil, always seeing and beholding evil things. Your body is full of darkness. And therefore, if the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? And so take heed that the light which is in you be not darkness. And if the whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light as when a bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Oh, may our lives just 
be filled with God's light. May God keep us from uh, darkness and, and from allowing the things of darkness to penetrate into our life. Oh, how I desire to be pure as he is pure, holy as he is holy, righteous as he is righteous, to live a godly, pure, and righteous life and not to allow my mind to be polluted with the things of darkness. There might be the glorious shining of his light. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. Jesus never turned down a dinner invitation. And he went in and sat down to meet. But always, they were always there just to find fault. I mean, uh, they, they weren't really seeking Jesus' company so much as just to look for something to condemn and look for something to criticize. And when the Pharisees saw it, well, and, and he uh, sat down to meet, and when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, they had a ritual washing, and it's all prescribed, uh, how that you had to pour so much water over your hands as you are rubbing your hands in an upward fashion like this, and you had to hold them out so that the water wouldn't drip down your wrist. So hold them out like this, and they pour water over, and you rub it, and then they pour more water over, and you hold them down and rub them. And it was a ritualistic kind of thing, and Jesus didn't go through that whole ritual. And so this fellow marveled, I mean, because, you know, after all, this is, this is ritual. And uh, so the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup? And the platter. But your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools. Did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather you give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Uh, because you uh, pay your tithes. You think that you can do anything you want, you know, and you can have all kinds of evil thoughts and surmise. Just because you give to God, you know, you're sort of thinking that you can buy favors with the Lord. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and anise and cumin. Actually, these uh, little herbs that they would grow in their gardens, the little spices. You know, they'd be sitting there counting out of the little seeds, you know, nine for me and one for him, nine for me, one for him. And, you know, giving the tenth of, of the spices out of their gardens. Very exacting to make sure that they paid their alms, their tithes. But he said, you pass over judgment and the love of God, the really important things, you sort of slight. You're so exacting in these things, but you're slighting the more important things of being fair, being honest, and of loving God and the love of God. Now, these things ought you to have done. In other words, Jesus didn't say you shouldn't tithe. 
You ought to do that, but really, you shouldn't leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees, because you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues. Uh, that is, the places of prominence. They would sit in the front and face the people. They love that, you know. And, uh, he, and he said, you love the greetings in the markets. They, they wore their robes and all that distinguished them as, as uh, the spiritual leaders. And they love that greeting in the marketplace, you know, and that reverence that uh, people would show to them because of their position. Woe to you, scribes, the ones who copied the scriptures, and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which do not appear, and men walk over them, are not aware of them. Uh, now, they weren't to touch a grave, because if they would touch a grave, they would be unclean. So you're like a grave that you can't see. People walking over you, and becoming unclean just by contact. And so one of the lawyers answered him and said, Master, what you say is reproaching us also. Uh, these men were the men who interpreted the law of Moses for the people. And so he, he is objecting to what Jesus is saying. He said, that sort of applies to us. And so he sort of opened the door and she said, one to you also, you lawyers. <laughs> For you load men down with burdens that are hard to bear. And ye yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your little fingers. You, you're saying, well, this is what God said, this is what God said. And you're putting on such a heavy burden. Peter, in referring to the law as it was given to them, said, why should we put on the Gentiles a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? So these teachers of the law were loading the people on with all of these regulations, all of these rules. On the Sabbath day, you're not to bear a burden. False teeth are a burden. Can't wear them on the Sabbath day. Wooden leg is a burden. Have to leave it off on the Sabbath day. And, and, and all of these, and he says, you don't touch them yourself with your little finger. I mean, you know, you're, you're putting regulations on others that you yourself can't even keep. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchers of the prophets, but your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchers. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will slay and persecute, that the blood of all of the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Who heavy duty. The blood of all of the prophets who prophesied of the coming of the Messiah, who were killed, because the people did not want to hear that God was displeased with them. People wanted to do their own thing without guilty consciences. And thus they sought to close the mouth of the prophets by destroying them. But the prophets were telling them that God was going to send his son 
the Savior of the world, to be the Savior of the world. And now God has kept his promise, but they, the generation, these lawyers and scribes and Pharisees he's talking to, they're going to crucify him. So the blood of all of the prophets that their fathers killed are going to be required of this generation. It's pretty much what Stephen said when he stood before the council and he cried out, which of the prophets have not your fathers slain? But then he went on to tell them that you have actually slain the one of whom the prophets spake. I mean, he, he sort of laid it so heavy on them that they began to gnash with their teeth. They went berserk and they grabbed him and stoned him to death uh, because they didn't want to hear the truth of their own guilt. Man doesn't want to hear the truth that he is guilty. He wants to hear soothing words. You're all right. That's just a part of human nature, you know, and you're just normal like everybody else and your feelings, and they want to be soothed in their evil and they want to have someone just appease them rather than to declare God's truth that the wrath of God is going to come against those that do such things and those that take pleasure in those that do them. So the blood of all of the prophets is going to be required of this generation, Jesus said, from the blood of Abel, going clear back to the book of Genesis, the son of Adam, who was killed by his brother Cain. You remember the story well. And from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Zacharias was the son of Jehoiada, the high priest. And there was the time when uh, the nation of Judah had really sunk very low. Uh, Athaliah, uh, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, had married the king. He died and she became the queen. And she was trying to destroy all of the descendants of David so that uh, none of David's descendants could live to be upon the throne. She's trying to wipe out uh, the family of David, even though God had promised that there would never cease to be one of David's family sitting on the throne. She, she was doing her best to wipe it out. But one of the nurses took a baby, uh, Joash, and she hid him, and they raised him in the temple until he was seven years old. And then Jehoiada, the priest, uh, set things up so that on a certain day, they had sort of strategically placed the Levites throughout the city, all armed, and uh, then they proclaimed that uh, they, they brought Joash the baby out. He was seven years old now, proclaimed him king, and uh, the people began to shout and all, and then Athaliah came in, and she said, treason, treason, and he said, take her outside the temple. Don't kill her inside, but take her outside. And so they killed Athaliah, and uh, Joash began to reign over Israel. And uh, through Joash and the influence of Jehoiada, because he's only seven years old, but Jehoiada the priest had an extremely strong influence on Joash. And so they got rid of the worship of Baal. And uh, they, they cut down all of the uh, 
places of worship for the false gods, and they reinstituted the temple worship. They refurbished the temple, reinstituted the worship within the temple. And during the years of Jehoiada, uh, they, they worshiped God and were blessed. But when Jehoiada died, then the young princes came in and they turned the mind of Joash the king and they began again to uh, worship Ashtoreth and uh, the other gods. And so Zacharias, who was the son of Jehoiada, this very influential priest who uh, brought Joash to the throne and influenced him during his life, the son, Zacharias, came in and he began to rebuke them for reverting back to their pagan worship. And Joash the king ordered Zacharias, they said, kill him. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to be rebuked. And so he killed the son of Jehoiada, the priest that had had such a godly influence upon him, because he rebuked him because of the reintroduction of the pagan idols and all in the nation. Of course, from then on, the nation was just downhill plunge. But the blood from Abel to Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. That generation that crucified the Lord, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, the people of Solomon's time and Jonah's time will rise in the day of judgment and condemn them because they at least turned to God and these people are rebelling and they're going to crucify the very Son of God. So woe unto you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge and you have entered not in yourselves and those that would enter in you have hindered. You actually stand in the way and hinder people from entering the kingdom of God. And I think that that's probably one of the worst things that a person can do. Not entering in is bad but hindering those that would enter in is a horrible sin. Jesus speaks about those who would destroy the faith of a child. It would be better for them that a millstone be hung around their neck and they be tossed into the sea than to destroy the faith of a child. Hindering those who would enter in is one of the most heinous sins in the eyes of God. May God help us that by our lives we don't hinder people. If you are inconsistent in your walk, it can be a hindrance to people. You can be a bad witness for Christ. We're all witnesses, some good, some bad. God help us to be good witnesses for him. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees, oh man, they got into it. <laughs> I mean, it really, this got heated. Uh, Real fast. They began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him into speaking of many things. I mean, they're really baiting him, urging him, baiting him, because they were lying in wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. They were trying to get him to say something that they could, you know, take legal charges against him and all. And so they're really pressing and pushing at this point. So, Quite an afternoon, I would say, uh, as Jesus sort of puts them in their place. Gospel according to Luke chapter 12. Now, 
Last Sunday night, we left Jesus in the midst of a heated debate. I think that they even got to the place of yelling at Jesus. They were egging him on. He was really laying it on the Pharisees. The lawyer said, well, what about us? He said, okay, and he laid it on them. And then they began to bait him. They began to urge him as, as they were getting so upset and angry over the things that he was saying. And so it was just really a uh, developing into a real kind of a shouting match. And that's where chapter 12 begins, right at the... Um, they were laying in wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. They were urging him vehemently, provoking him to speak about many things. And, and so when you get a heated kind of a debate or argument going, it attracts attention, it draws people. And so in the meantime, as this is going on, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch they began to trample over each other. I mean, people were just trying to get close, trampling over each other, uh, trying to hear just all that was going on in this heated debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. He turned to his disciples. Now this is addressed to his disciples. And he said, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. To his disciples, he is warning them to beware of hypocrisy. Now the word Hypocrisy comes from the Greek word hypocrites, and uh, literally it means wearing a mask. In the Greek theater, the actors used to have these masks that they would hold over their faces, the wearing of a mask, hiding behind a mask. And Jesus is saying, beware of this hiding behind a mask, of hypocrisy of appearing to be something that you're really not. What a curse hypocrisy has been to the church. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. But what a curse hypocrisy has been to the church, where people are pretending to be something they are not, where people are wearing masks. For Jesus said, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. You might be trying to cover the truth. You might be trying to hide behind a mask. You might have an appearance of being one thing when in reality you are something else, but it's going to be revealed. It's going to come out. Neither anything hid that shall not be known. We have seen in the last few years, many people who were hiding behind masks, and we have seen the truth revealed. So many of those who were on TV, famous 
TV personalities who were really masking the truth. They were one thing on television, but they were something totally different when the cameras were off. And they have been exposed and are being exposed. So Jesus warns them, and and I think that Jesus is very gracious and he's very patient. And he gives warnings. And it is only after the warnings have been disregarded that then the Lord takes the next step and he exposes and he reveals the hypocrisy that is there. I think that that's probably one of the inherent dangers with television is that so often the temptation is to appear to be something that you're not. Of course, you're you're all made up to begin with. You have a mask to start with. And, And you then have a way of sort of being on stage, performing, and it's not always in your heart. People are being deceived. But the Lord said, look, it's going to be revealed. There's nothing hidden that he's not going to expose. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in darkness, off stage, off of the camera, shall be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in the closets shall be proclaimed from the housetops. You're not going to get by with your double life, with your double standards. God will make certain that it is exposed and that it is revealed. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Now, the disciples of Jesus are seeing the anger that people have against Jesus. They are seeing these men that are baiting Jesus, yelling at Jesus. They can see the veins sticking out of their necks as as they are faced with the truth that Jesus is piercing their hearts and they're angry. And the disciples can see this. And Jesus talking to his disciples more or less is saying, you see this anger? You see how upset they are? They're going to be angry and upset with you. They're going to kill some of you. But don't be afraid of those who can kill your body and after that they have no power. But yea, I say unto you, I'll forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into Gehenna. I say unto you, fear him. Now, in the Bible, we have the places of punishment for the evil that are spoken of. And there is that place called Hades. And it is translated hell. In the Hebrew, the word is Sheol. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's 
the word for grave. In the Greek, it is Hades. And uh, it is the place of incarceration or the place where the dead exist. And prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was divided into two compartments, as we will find out as we move along in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. And we'll look at this place called Hades more completely when we get to chapter 16. But then there is another place of punishment for the wicked, and that is the eternal place of punishment, and in the Hebrew it is called Gehenna. And when Jesus speaks of Gehenna, he speaks in terms of the eternal punishment. Concerning Gehenna, he said, where the worm dieth not and neither is the fire quenched. And here he uses the word Gehenna. Don't fear him who can kill your body, but after that doesn't have any power, but rather fear the one who can kill your body, but then cast your soul into Gehenna. Yes, I say fear him. Now, one day, death and Hades will give up the dead which are in them, and they will stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And those whose names are not found written in the book of life will then be cast into Gehenna. This is the second death, the scripture said. So uh, Gehenna, the place of God's final disposition of the wicked. And Jesus said concerning Gehenna that it was prepared for Satan and his followers. So uh, we'll, as I say, get more involved in that when we get to the 16th chapter. But no that when you talk about hell, there are two Greek words that are both translated hell in your Bible. One is Hades, and the other is Gehenna. Hades is a temporary place uh, in the heart of the earth. Gehenna is the eternal place of separation from those who do not want to be with God. Then Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Um, a farthing, two farthings, a farthing is a half of a cent. Two farthings would be a cent. And in those days you could buy five sparrows for two farthings. Now Luke's gospel uh, declares that Jesus one time was saying, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? So evidently, two for one, but you can get five for two. In other words, buy, buy five of them, I mean, buy four of them, and they'll throw in the extra one free. And uh, they're not worth much. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, sparrows aren't worth very much. They're a very, you know, but yet your father watches over them 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. Every sparrow. God is very watchful over his creation, even the sparrows. Jesus in another place said, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but what your father isn't aware of it. And yet they're quite insignificant. There there are so many of them, and yet your father watches them. And then he said, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, they say that blondes have 125,000 hair on their heads and that brunettes have 95,000 and that redheads have 85,000. I don't know who counted them, but uh, (laughs) that's what they say, whoever they are. But Jesus, again, is just illustrating how that your father is omniscient. He knows all things. And nothing passes him. And every minute detail of your life is of concern to him. That's how observant and concerned your heavenly father is with you. And therefore... Jesus said, you're worth more, your father watching over you. Fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than many sparrows. And also I say unto you, still addressing his disciples, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. So Matthew has and Mark has the warning of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit coupled with the casting out of the demon of the a man who was deaf and uh, mute and blind, uh, where they attributed the works of Jesus to Beelzebub. And here Jesus again is warning against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is the continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to your heart that you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You see, God has provided only one means by which your sins can be forgiven. And that's through the death of his son. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to your heart that you need to surrender your life to Jesus. And if you disregard that warning, if you do despite to his spirit of grace, that is reaching out and offering you the salvation. There is no other means whereby your sins can be forgiven. And your sins will either be forgiven and pardoned because of the work of Jesus Christ, or they will be punished in Gehenna. So beware of that turning your back upon the witness of the Holy Spirit to your heart. 
inviting you to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and to the magistrates and the powers, take no thought of how or what thing you're going to answer or what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 11 through 12 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you again for the study of the Word, and may we glean from it, Lord, and may our prayer life be enriched and enhanced as we understand your nature, your giving nature, and how willing you are to give to us, Lord, both for our physical and spiritual needs. Lord, may we learn to just look to you for all things. And Lord, we just pray that you will help us to realize your power and your victory over the forces of darkness. And Lord, help us that we'll guard those things that we look at lest we bring into our minds things of darkness, things that would pollute, things that would destroy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. For years, Pastor Chuck was asked thousands of questions. This new guy that my mom married, he thinks that the Christian beliefs are foolish, and I was wondering if that's going to like affect my mom's walk. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to fight the addiction of smoking, and are those things going to keep me from going in the rapture? Is it okay to use your tithe and give it to someone who's going on a mission trip instead of giving it directly to church? 
The Word for Today is pleased to present an ebook called Biblical Counseling by Chuck Smith, listing over 200 topics that include Pastor Chuck's commentary and the scripture references he used. Topics include addiction, business relationships, depression, lawsuits, sexuality, training children, and so much more. To download the Biblical Counseling ebook by Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link provided. Or you can call 1-800-272-9673.